Welcome to Murder and Mayhem, the podcast where we explore the dark and mysterious side of writing. It's a world filled with more evil and crime than you can shake a sharpened stick at, where people save the world from certain destruction, where spies, terrorists and thugs abound, and where the killer could be someone in your very own home. It's also a world often filled with flawed heroes and likeable villains. But above all, it's a place where we explore the authors who tell these very stories, what makes them tick, and how their words manage to take us to some of the darkest corners of our imaginations. Hello everyone, my name's Valerie Koo and I'm host of the Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast. This episode is brought to you by the popular online course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. Over eight spine-chilling modules, you'll delve into each step of the murder process, including the psychological, forensic and legal aspects of homicide from premeditation right through to prison life. Brought to you by one of the world's leading centres, for writing courses, the Australian Writers' Centre. Using both real and fictional cases, you'll discover the many faces of killers, the police who pursue them, and the victims who get caught in the killer's trap, all designed to enhance your crime and thriller writing and help you bring writing about death to life. It's a self-study course with a full audio program, including accompanying handouts and videos and resources where you can view real forensic and police reports reports and a dissection of real murder scenes. Find out more at murdercourse.com. That's murdercourse.com. This is Valerie Koo and this is the next instalment of the Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast. Thanks for joining us and we hope you're enjoying spending 31 days with some of the world's best crime and thriller authors and it's great to get an insight into their minds to really see what makes them tick and to help us understand how in the world they come up with all of these dark stories and these complex plots and these intricate structures about what their villains and their protagonists are going to do. If you also want the ebook accompanying this podcast, which is free, you can download the ebook, A Month of Murder and Mayhem, at murdercourse.com. Now, these interviews originally appeared in our other podcast called So You Want to Be a Writer, and that's where we interview writers from all walks of life, writers, authors, publishers, in all sorts of different genres, editors, you name it. But for Crime and Thriller Month, we curated all of the best crime and thriller authors so you could binge listen to them all in one go. And today we are talking to Caroline Overington. Now, she is a very, very prolific writer, has been an award-winning journalist for many years and a magazine editor and has been twice awarded the Walkley Award for Investigative Journalism. But then she turned her hand to writing books and has been very successful. She's also been the associate editor of the iconic magazine, The Australian Women's Weekly, and is now writing for The Australian. But back in 2010, when she she decided to explore the world of books, she published her first novel called Ghost Child to great critical acclaim. And since then, she's written 11 books, including her most recent, which is a thriller called The One Who Got Away. 
Now, we spoke to Caroline after she published No Place Like Home, a thriller set in the beachside suburb of Bondi. Here, early one morning, a young Tanzanian man walks into a shopping centre and strapped to his neck is a bomb, and within minutes, he's locked in a shop with four hostages. So in this chat, Caroline is interviewed by Danielle Williams. Hi, Caroline. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. First of all, tell us a bit about the latest book, No Place Like Home. Well, No Place Like Home, the premise is quite simple. You have a young man who runs into a shopping centre. Um, he is chased by security guards and uh, he ultimately finds himself locked in a shop. And once he gets into the shop, it becomes apparent that he has uh, some kind of explosive device strapped or locked to his neck. Um, there's four other people in the shop with him, uh, two men and two women. Um, two of them you would classify really as children, although they are teenagers, they're children. Um, and the idea is, well, the question, I guess, is who is he and what does he want? Um, and I guess the feeling for readers might at the beginning be, well, it must be some kind of terrorist attack um, because he it's very quickly revealed that he's a refugee to Australia, but he doesn't say anything. So it's quite difficult for the police to work out exactly what's going on. Right. Um, where did the idea for this story come from? Because obviously a lot of readers now might see some parallels with recent events in Kenya. Yeah, I was amazed by that, actually. It often happens when you're writing fiction that things... Well, when I write my fiction, I always have real life in mind because my argument has always been that you can say a lot more in fiction than you can in journalism. I worked in journalism for a very long time and I'm, I'm still the associate editor of the Australian Women's Weekly, so I'm engaged in, in journalism every day. But it's very different to writing fiction because in fiction you can really tell the whole story. Um, you can get inside people's minds, you can explain what they're thinking, you can um, you can give explanations for what's going on and you're often um, constrained in that when you're working in journalism because there'll be a range of different laws like for example defamation you know if you say something negative about a person then there's the potential for them to sue and so you need you know you need to catch your language and so on you don't have to worry about any of that in fiction so I guess I have I, I was I was surprised on one hand to see that siege um, three weeks ago now in Kenya where um, terrorists broke into a shopping centre and, and really massacred a lot of people um, because it was so close to what I had been trying to do. Although I think um, my book is more of a political message. Um, it, it's not meant to be a, a story of a huge tragedy. It's meant to have a very um, delicate political message at its heart. Sure. And, I mean, you, with all of your novels, you, you tackle sometimes quite confronting themes it sounds like you do do that intentionally or, do, you know, does, do these things just kind of grow out of the story sometimes or do you always have a plan to tackle a particular theme in your books? Yeah, I, I'm always trying to tackle a particular theme in each in each one of the books or a particular idea in each one of the books. And in the past um, 12 months, I've really been fascinated, as I'm sure many Australians have, by the debate surrounding new arrivals on our shores and and in in part that's because my own grandparents um, were refugees although they were called migrants in those days it was after the second world war they came out from germany 
Um, my grandfather was Jewish, um, is Jewish. In fact, he's still um, alive, still with us, 91 years old, living in the same house he moved into when he came out um, on the boat. And uh, and there was a lot of fear. You know, of course there was a lot of fear. Um, but Australia has always been an incredibly um, welcoming community and people very quickly adapted. And I've been interested in the past 12 months to see much more anger um, and much more resentment towards people who arrive. And I, I did want to tackle some of the, the issues around that. Right, yeah. Now, you, uh, your first novel came out in 2010, is that right? Yes, although you're testing my memory. It might have been 2009, but it yeah, was certainly... Yeah, certainly dates, yeah. yeah, certainly. <laughs> well, this is my fifth, and I've written one a year for the past five years. Yeah, so a novel a year plus your usual work as a journalist and magazine editor... What what was the thing that opened the floodgates for your fiction writing? Yeah, I, I just found that I suddenly had a lot that I wanted to say, and I wanted to say it in a long form way. I had been getting pretty frustrated uh, working for newspapers because I was working for newspapers at the time when I started um, because of constraints. In those days, there was a lot of, and this is only five years ago. It sounds like ancient mm. history, but. Um, there was constraints in terms of space because, you know, the internet really has only taken off in the last five years. Um, so people, journalists who worked for newspapers used to worry about how much space they had in the paper. If you had a story on the front page, for example, you might get 600 words or 700 words. That's not a lot. And if you had a feature, you know, in one of the um, features pages, maybe 1,500 words, you can't really say all you've seen and all you've learned in a 20-year in a career. And so I did have a lot that I wanted to say. And in the beginning, it was about um, children and the way we care for them and, and the child welfare system because I'd seen how broken that was. And then it, it kind of expanded into other areas. But you're right, it's a big it's a big undertaking to write a book a year. Very few people yeah. do it in Australia. I know Di Morrissey, um, who's formerly also at the Australian Women's Weekly, does it. And I think that she's just produced her 21st novel. So that's an extraordinary undertaking. And I think... Uh, Peter Fitzsimons too writes a book a year, different, because they're not they're not fiction, they're they're historical novels, um, or historical books actually. Mm. Um, but there are very few people who who take on that undertaking. Um, but you know, it's been a, it's been a wonderful ride for me. I've really enjoyed it. What was that transition like? Was it very easy for you to start writing fiction, or you know, was was there a bit of a struggle to get into it? It was very, um, I felt very free, if that makes sense, because I suddenly didn't have to worry about all the things that I had been worrying about before. I didn't have to, you know, I remember actually thinking, you know, I was writing something down that, that had, it was kind of a fictionalized um, version of something that happened in real life, and I wanted it to go off in a particular direction. And I thought, oops, I can't do that because that didn't really happen. And then I thought, well, actually, I can do whatever I like. Mm. <laughs> and that actually felt quite free because, you know, obviously when you're working, within the constraints of fact and journalism, you can't do that. You can't just go off on a tangent and, just, and decide the ending. And it's nice being able to decide the ending because in real life, the ending can be entirely unsatisfactory, particularly when you're dealing um, with court cases. You know, very often as journalists, you look at the outcome of court cases and you think, oh, you have to be joking. Um, whether you think the person's guilty or whether you think the person is innocent, you know, the outcomes can sometimes really shock you. Um, yeah. And also events... That you know, I've covered in my uh, my career. I've looked at it, and I've just thought, I can't believe that I would have ended it so differently. You know, if you could play the hand of God, which of course you can in a novel, you can decide. 
Yeah, sure. So even though it was quite a freeing experience for you, were you nervous about um, seeing that first book being published? <laughs> Incredibly nervous. Yeah. I mean, n- nervous about showing it to anyone because, you know, I think one of the fears that we all have is, and I've discussed this with so many other Australian writers, and, you know, you just worry, you, you write something down and then you read it back so many times and you just can't help thinking, this is just rubbish, this is just absolute rubbish. And it's because you've looked at it too much and you've thought about it too much and you're overwrought and you're anxious and you've got your your ego is involved and, and you know, your expectations of your parents and your childhood baggage is all there. And, and so you kind of, you worry. And I, I thought, I can't show it to anyone. And I really had to to push myself even to send it to someone, you know. And then when I when they came back and they said, you know, we'd love to publish it, I, I, it's, it's a sense of elation. It's close to the best day of your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously you're still working as a magazine editor. Yes. And journalist. I've had, yeah, I've had the busiest year imaginable and that's why I was so thrilled to be able to stick to the schedule of doing a book a year because... I started at the Australian Women's Weekly this year, and as it happens, it's the 80th year of the weekly. Um, mm-hmm. that's a, yeah, that's a very historic occasion for us. Um, it makes us the oldest magazine um, continuously in Australia. But also, these special souvenir editions, the 80th editions, they go into the National Archives in Canberra. And, you know, 50 and 20 years, 100 years from now, people can pull them out and they can look at, you know, the food we ate and, and the, the clothes we wore, but also what life was like for Australian women in, in 2013. And I'm sure you've done this, most people have done this, looked back at, at magazines of the weekly from, you know, 50 years ago, 30 years ago and looked at, you know, been amazed by, by what, you know, the way we lived. And so we took the responsibility of producing this issue very, very seriously. Mm. Um, uh, we had to, we had to really go looking in, into our, into our hearts and our conscience and thought, you know, what, what kind of women should we put in this magazine? What kind of interviews do we want to have? With what sort of people? How can we show, you know, all the complexity of Australian womanhood in this magazine? And, and it, it's been a big year as a result. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. How do you, this is going off track a bit, but I'm curious, um, how um, do you see that Women's Weekly has changed over that those 80 years in terms of its relevance to the audience? Yeah, yeah the number one thing that has changed, well, actually it's funny, it's because people do say, well, you know, say to me sometimes, you know, one day all your readers are going to die out. The idea being that our readers are over the age of uh, 45 or 50 and, and they're getting older and one day they'll, they'll die off and then we won't have any readers left. But actually what happens is people grow into the weekly. Um, you get to a certain age and you find that it does appeal to you. And, that, and that's true, I think, with everything in life. I mean, you might have watched you know, The Young Ones or Generation Z or whatever it was called when you were a youngster, but it doesn't appeal to you anymore. When you're 40, you're more interested in something like Breaking Bad or, you know, you just grow up and your tastes change. Um, and so we find our readership, you know, we often have, amongst our readership, there's always a group of new people who haven't read us previously and who remember their mums reading us. So we find that the the things that we need to talk about have to be um, appealing to Australian womanhood today. There are vastly more working mothers than there ever were, vastly more. There are vastly more people making the decision not to get married and not to have children than there were 50 years ago. I mean, those are the kinds of things that you can just see in Australian statistics, and they are reflected in our readership too. So perhaps in the past where we might not might not have tackled um, different stories about different family makeups, um, we would do that now. So for mm. example, um, last month I, I did a story on uh, Ricky Martin who was coming out to Australia um, to be a host on The Voice, 
um, and on his decision to have IVF twins through a surrogate, um, which was a story that would be unfathomable for the weekly 20 years ago, the idea that a gay man would uh, adopt uh, surrogate children or would pay a surrogate to have children for him um, would not have been something that was even um, scientifically possible, let alone something that would have been in the magazine. So there are big changes and we we are very keen to reflect them. You know, We don't want people to pick up the magazine that we produced this year and say, well, that's a throwback to the 1950s. It has to look like we are today. Sure. It must be exciting to be involved with something like that. It, it is exciting. Um, it's also incredibly busy. Like, for example, this, I had to go to London to interview Helen Mirren. I had to go to Los Angeles to interview Ellen DeGeneres. I had to go to the Pilbara to interview Jenna Reinhardt, who is the richest woman in the world. Um, I've just done an interview with Anna Bly, the former um, Queensland Premier. Um, we didn't choose her because she was going through cancer treatment. Um, she was one of the, our most admired women in the 80s. Um, anniversary edition. We, we chose her because of her achievements in public life. She was mm. the first woman Premier of Queensland, but she was also the first woman ever elected to the office of Premier in any state. I mean, previously women had been put into the role, like Christina Keneally and uh, Joan Turner and others had been put into the role, but she stood for election and she won it in her own right. So she had that, but she also had um, terrific handling, we thought, of the natural disasters and calamities yeah. that had affected Queensland, the floods and the fires. So we wanted to include her, and it just, well, fortunately or unfortunately, the timing meant that she would have to be photographed bald, and yeah. so that, and so that was a challenge for us how how to do that, and not because we knew that if we had a picture of the of Anna Bly bald, that that would be um, a, a source of interest to people. People would rush to look at that, that for sure. But what we were very conscious of is there are a lot of people out there who are battling cancer, and she was very worried about having them think. How come I'm not doing that well? Because, you know, we were going to glamorise her. We were going to make sure she looked absolutely beautiful. She'd be wonderfully styled. And she wanted people to know, I don't always look like this. This Mm. has been as tough for me as it has been for anyone. Don't think that I am bravely going on and, and, you know, just conquering this. She said there are people out there who have much tougher things to deal with than I do. Um, And I don't want anyone to think that this has been easy for me. So there's the responsibility of capturing those messages and capturing those stories and not presenting something that is even a little bit false. Yep, sure. Um, so back to your writing life, uh, obviously you're working on a million things at once. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And it, can, and it can be quite schizophrenic in a way because you have to drag your mind from one topic to another and, and, and it can be exhausting. Do you have strategies for doing that? Is it a daily routine or something? I'm currently do? writing my novels on Fridays. I used to write them on Monday, right. but now I write them on Fridays. When I went to the weekly, um, I did speak to the editor-in-chief about my passion for writing novels, and I, I do need a day a week to do it. I, I You know, you can sit up all night and do it and snatch the time away from your children and your, your family life and so on, but I want a little bit more structure, and so I, so I tend to write on Fridays. I start um, quite early in the morning and then um, I carry on through the day. I often have a break at noon. I walk my dog down to the beach. I live in Bondi. Um, we often sit there by the, the water together and she has half my sandwich and then we come back to the house and I work again so I'll leave for a couple of hours until the kids come home and, and I prepare their dinner and I might work a little bit, you know, read over what I've written in the evening. And so that's a day that's solely devoted to the writing of the novel and, so, and, that, and that I found has really helped. 
do you set word counts for that writing day? Actually, I don't. I know a lot of people do, that they have, for example, a little counter, um, something like Scrivener can give you a counter, which is a, a computer program, um, can give you a counter for the day. And um, I, for me, no, because sometimes, you know, you're working on just what, if you could just get the start of this paragraph going, you'd be off, you know, and you'd suddenly be writing 6,000 words. And so you really have to concentrate on, on getting it right. And I, I wouldn't want to think to myself, well, I just have to write 3,000 words even if it's rubbish. But there are people who say, yes, that's what I have to do. I have to write 3,000 words even if it's rubbish and then go back and polish every word like a pearl. So, you know, yeah, different yeah. different approaches, yeah. Mm. So what are you working on now? I assume novel number six is already in the on the cards. Yes, I am. I am writing on a, another another novel. It is slightly different um, in that it, it. I don't think it will be set in Australia at the moment. It doesn't seem to be set in Australia. Um, my my husband and I and our children lived for a long time in the United States. Well, not a long time, for a few years in New York City when the children were very small. Um, and I've wanted to revisit that time. I, I remember a lot about it, and there were, there were things that happened that I wanted to revisit. I wanted to revisit it in the form of a novel. So I might. I might take my imagination over there, I think. Oh, another exciting development for you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just one final question. What is your advice for new writers? You, everyone will say this, but it is so absolutely true. You have to write. Um, I meet a lot of people who come to writers' festivals. And I meet a lot of um, people who just come up to me and say, you know, they would really like to write a novel one day. Um, and when I say to them, well, what have you written? They may not have written anything, and that's a mistake. They're, I think they're waiting for the right opportunity or they're waiting for the for the contract or they're waiting for for something even in the fight. They're not even sure what they're waiting for. But you need to start because in Australia today, it's so hard um, to get a book published and any publisher is going to want to see at least, at least 30,000 and probably 50,000 words. So even if you're, you're writing something and you think, well, this is never going to get published, don't worry about it. Just, just go and do it for the love of it. Just do it because you, you have something you want to say. And then if you do manage to produce 30 or 50,000 words, then you can, you'll have something to send off. But you can't, you can't get the contract without starting. So you know, get to work. That would be my advice. And it's excellent advice. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your writing day today to chat to us. And good luck with the next novel. Thank you. I really appreciate it. There we go, Caroline Overington. Now, I love the fact that Caroline can use writing fiction as a creative outlet because, as she says, when you're doing journalism or you're writing true crime, you really need to stick to the facts and, in a sense, you're quite constrained by those facts. You can't explore certain areas just because it's not possible. But with fiction, when writing crime fiction, you can let your imagination run wild and that's certainly really liberating. And it's great if you're a writer if you can have that balance because it's great to have those parameters and those restrictions sometimes because it's great to train yourself to be able to write in that way especially in the world of journalism but also to balance it out with an opportunity to just write about anything.
And I really encourage you to do that, particularly if you are a non-fiction writer, because when you write non-fiction, it can be easy to stay within that structure. Let your imagination run wild. Let yourself go for a change and see what it's like to write fiction where you don't have those restrictions placed upon you. Even if it's just an exercise where you do it for a month and maybe every day write something that's completely made up. I know that this is something that's really obvious for those of you who do write fiction, but it's actually quite a difficult step for some non-fiction writers to take. And if you're in that boat, I encourage you to explore that creative side of yourself. So anyway, that was Caroline Overington, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. The Murder and Mayhem podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres for writing courses, with online and classroom writing courses in all genres of writing, including crime writing, students enrol from all over the world. You'll find a course to suit your needs right here at writerscentre.com.au.